0: Now my, now my stomach's grumbling now, listening to that. <clears throat> Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching to the believers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly, they became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. In verse 22, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church, decided to choose some of their men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubled your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear brothers Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it, and they were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers, and after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord.
1: Last weekend, a number of us uh, took some time away on Saturday at uh, Hidden Acres Retreat Centre, and it was a great time to be together as uh, part of our Elevation community. Now, the night before, uh, some of our staff went down And it was our responsibility to prepare some breakfast casseroles for the next morning. We wanted to do the cooking, so in the morning we would just wake up and throw them in the oven so that when everyone arrived, it would smell wonderful and we could dive into a delicious breakfast. Uh, I was charged for making the gluten-free casserole primarily because it uh, had a lot of meat and I wanted to cook the meat. And so I was at the stove, and I'm frying up the bacon, and I'm frying up some crumbled sausage, and and the bacon was done, and I set it aside, and then Ron Croker joined me at the stove, and we were making these, like, homemade hash browns, and we were really paying attention to cooking them right. Neither of us had done it before, and we're we're trying to to get them cooked just right. And then Ron turns to me, and he says, looking at the pan of sausage, is that burning? which when I realized I hadn't stirred the sausage in probably 10 minutes. So I quickly got it off the burner and realized that it was completely burning. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have ruined this, I've been making this. Uh, Helen did her best. She came over, she grabbed a piece and put it in her mouth, and she said, "She said, oh, it's not bad, it, it's just a little crunchy. That was really nice of Helen. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a lie, but I wouldn't call it the truth either. And so I tried it myself and realized it was awful. Um, But what was I going to do? So what I did was spend the next 40 minutes picking little burnt bits of sausage off of the crumbled sausage and putting them in a bowl, like separating the, the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, whatever analogy you want, until I had a bowl of good sausage with no burnt pieces in it at all, which we put into the casserole and which everyone enjoyed the next morning. I shared that story with you for three reasons. One, because someone else would have told it eventually and spun it in their own way. Uh, The second reason is I wanted you to know just how much I love our church. That I would be willing to spend 40 minutes picking burnt pieces of sausage so that you can enjoy a casserole. But I also wanted to say that there's something even more essential than paying attention in the kitchen, and that's paying attention to God as a community of faith. Eugene Peterson gives a definition of church as a community of men and women who are convinced. That cultivating an attentive listening and speaking relation to the God who listens and speaks to them is at the very heart of being human. This is what matters more than anything. Over the past two weeks, we've spent some time considering the importance of listening to one another. We considered the challenge that James provides for us being slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. And then last week, we talked about the importance of listening to God. Christian shared with us the story of the young boy Samuel, trying to understand how can we position ourselves to hear from God? What does that look like? And this morning, we're going to bring these two side by side and explore how we can listen to God together as a community of faith. And we're going to do that by walking through this passage from Acts chapter 15. It begins this way, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Certain people, every church has them, always has, but of course it's always someone else. It's never you, I'm never that certain person, right? It's always someone else. Well, these particular certain people had a problem with circumcision, There are basically two types of people in the room this morning, those who have kind of grown up around church that aren't really surprised that we're talking about circumcision, and those who might be visiting this morning who are wondering why on earth we would ever talk about that on a Sunday morning. Well, it basically goes like this. Uh, if we flip back all the way to the early days of the story of God's interaction with His people, God called a man named Abram to follow him by faith into a new promised land. He gave Abraham this promise that he would make him into the father of many nations. And we read in Genesis 17 verses 1 and 2, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Well, for the next few verses, he goes goes on and talks about all of these blessings that he's going to give. And then in verse 9 and 10, we pick it up. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for generations to come. And this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Well, that was a shock. Where did that one come from? Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off, no pun intended, from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right. So, this is the story of the history of God's people, and the teaching of these certain people means nothing at all to us. We couldn't care less about this, but it meant everything to them. This was a core piece of their identity as the people of God, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to acknowledge that the Christian church has always had a a long history of sharp disagreements that have led to division. In the fourth century, there was something known as the Arian Controversy. Two prominent um, Christian theologians, Arius and Athanasius, they were teaching in Alexandria, Egypt. They had a sharp disagreement because Arius had a different understanding of who Jesus was. He said, I don't think Jesus is, is eternal. I think there was a time that God the Father created Jesus. And, and that was different kind of thinking. And so, Athanasius stood up against that, and, it, and at, Arius was ousted from the church because of this heresy. And these various heresies during the, the second, third, fourth century, they pushed the early church to define and articulate more clearly what it believed. Fast forward to the 11th century, and a controversy over a word filioque. It's a word that probably anyone here who's not a pastor or a theologian wouldn't even have ever heard this word before. It's a Latin term that was added to the original Nicene Creed, to the statement that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and the word phileoqui means, and the Son. They said, we think that more accurately describes the Holy Spirit. And this theological dispute split the Christian church in half. The Eastern church, the Eastern Orthodox church, saying, no, we're going to stick with the Nicene Creed the way it was in the beginning, and the Western Church, which became the Roman Catholic Church, saying, no, we think that that this addition is important. A split you may be more familiar with. In the 15th century, Martin Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, A, a direct challenge to numerous teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, of which Luther was a part, leading to the Protestant Reformation, and the church has been splitting in half ever since that day. The church has this long history. Controversy has been a constant companion of the church. So what happened when these certain people came to Antioch? Well, we read that there was a sharp dispute and debate between Paul and Barnabas. They're saying, wait a second, you can't be teaching that. And they decided, you know what, we've got to go to our leaders. We've got to talk to the apostles and elders about this question and have a decision made here. So, in verse 4 of chapter 15, we read that when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Smart guys. They started with all the good news. Everyone got excited. Listen to all these great stories these guys have. This is fantastic. But then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. As we walk through the record of what has become known as the Jerusalem Council, I want us to think about how their experience can inform us all of these years later. I want to point out five different things that I see them doing during this council and in Acts chapter 15 that help us understand how you make decisions about difficult issues together as a community, how we listen to God together. The first thing that, that we find is dialogue. Dialogue. Verse 6 says that the apostles and elders met to consider this question. They engaged in conversation together about the issue at hand. Jeffrey Hollander writes that leadership is about being better able to listen to the whole than anyone else can. It might sound like a weird definition of leadership for you, but notice that it's the whole that leaders must be committed to listening to. Not just listening to one side, but the whole picture. We had an interesting example of this locally. Uh, Some of you would be familiar with the story of Lindsay Shepard. Teaching assistant at Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, who got herself into some trouble. She was teaching in, into some trouble. She was teaching a first-year grammar class, and they were talking about gender pronouns. And she decided to show a video that kind of showed a couple of different people's opinions on the use of gender pronouns. Uh, so at least one person in the class was upset by this and talked to someone else. And basically, what happened was th- three of her supervisors pulled her together and reprimanded her for showing a video that went against the kind of assumed position of the university. Well, this blew up. It's become a giant conversation around free speech. Uh, At the end of the day, if you want to say that, I'm sure it's not over, uh, but the president of of the university issued a letter apologizing, saying that Lindsay Shepard had done no wrong, and that the administration was wrong in suppressing her kind of idea that we should be listening to other opinions. Now, it's a very complicated situation, and I don't want to minimize it, other than to say that it's really raised this idea of listening to diverse opinions and the value in listening to things, even if they're things that we don't agree with. It's of crucial importance that there be an openness to considering different perspectives, which is precisely what the apostles and elders did when they got together. Now, of course, having access to an audio recording to let us listen in on their conversation would be fantastic, but we'll have to be content with the fact that we, they did talk. We know that much. And so, genuinely open dialogue, including opposition and debate, is an essential starting point for us. The second thing that we see them taking into consideration is God's activity. I want to read Acts chapter 15, verse 7 again for you. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Now, the backstory of this is actually kind of interesting. In Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter's up on the roof of a house and he falls into a trance, the Bible says, and he has this wild vision. He has this vision of a giant sheet descending from heaven, and on this sheet are a bunch of animals, but they're unclean animals because Jews didn't interact with and certainly didn't eat animals that were considered unclean. And so he sees this giant sheet coming down from heaven, and he hears the voice of God saying to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's like, what on earth is going on? And so we read his response in Acts chapter 10. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure, that God has made clean. Now, you have to at least try to imagine how shocked and offended Peter was by this. And yet, there it is, He's starting to see how God might have been working in their midst. Now, this is important, because it reveals the church's willingness to go beyond their personal opinions and feelings. Peter wanted nothing to do with these unclean animals. And they begin to open themselves up to consideration of what God was doing. And so, back to the Jerusalem counselor. Council. Peter stands up and he says that God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. You see, Peter's response to that bizarre dream of his was to obey, despite his objections. So he went to the home of a Gentile named Cornelius. Now, this is not something that Jews would do. They would not go and and eat in the home of an uncircumcised family. And so, Peter is rebuked by the church leaders at the time. But he says to them in Acts 11, as I began to speak to them in this house, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us at the beginning, and He knew this because they began to speak in other tongues or other languages. He said, so if God gave them the same gift He gave us, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And so it's important to listen to people share their stories of experience with God. In Antioch, God was doing something, and it didn't appear that circumcision was a factor. The third thing that we find in this example from Jerusalem Council is an appeal to higher principles. At the conclusion of his little speech, Peter says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So Peter wraps up his argument with an appeal to something that they all agreed on. This was significant. This is the thing that mattered the most. John would write at the introduction to his gospel, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Paul would write in his letter to the Galatians, which is all about this circumcision controversy, he would write, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. But of course, he didn't believe that Christ died for nothing. He, along with everyone, believed that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the most significant thing that had happened in world history, that everything had been changed as a result of that, and the only chance that any of us have of being saved is because of what He's done. It's not what we do. It's not about following the laws and doing all the ceremonial things anymore. It's because of what God had done in Christ. And so he appeals to this higher principle, but it's not just a higher principle in general. It is perhaps the highest principle of all. So they had to wrestle with the question, does the requirement of circumcision fit within a framework of grace? The next thing that they looked at was the fruit. Okay, so what's happening amongst these people who aren't being circumcised and yet are proclaiming to be God's people? In verse 12 of Acts chapter 15, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Part of the council's consideration were the results that were seen in Antioch. I was gathering together with some pastors this week, and one of them was talking about how he was going to stop counting attendance in their church. And he he said that every week they count attendance, and he said that it's like the first thing he does when the service is done. He wants to know how many people are there, and he realized, what's the problem here? Like, why am I so obsessed with these numbers? It can be certainly looking for results like that uh, can be dangerous, but There's nothing wrong in looking for results in general. Looking for fruit is an important thing, a way to understand how healthy something is or not. Jesus told this parable in Luke 13, verses 6 to 9. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man said, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. If something doesn't bear fruit, well, then it's time for it to go, at least after an expression of patience. But if it bears fruit, then we find it more difficult to argue with Jesus who said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Now, Jesus had a penchant for hyperbole, so it's important that we admit this isn't a foolproof argument. Just because we see good fruit doesn't mean that necessarily whatever's happening, taking place is is good and approved, but it's it's a clue, and alongside the rest of the things that we observe, it ought to be factored in. And then finally, Scripture. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, presents one final argument before pronouncing the church's judgment, an appeal to Scripture. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And he goes on to quote verses from what we understand as the Old Testament, what they would have understood as Scripture. And he quotes this and says, it seems like God has always been intending to graft the Gentiles into his people. And so here we find yet another key component of discerning God's voice as a community. How has God already spoken about this? What has already been said? In another of his New Testament letters, Paul would write that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Of course, he was referring to his Scripture, which would have been the law and the prophets, and we understand this principle to be applied to the New Testament as well. You see, they look back at all that God had been saying down through the years and recognize a thread of this Gentile story weaved throughout their sacred texts. Clark Pinnock writes… A theology that does not inquire after God's will for the present may be orthodox, but is not really listening to God. Something for us to keep in mind. Learning how to apply Scripture to contentious issues, that is no easy task, but it's a discipline we need to grow in if we want to discern God's voice in our own day. And so only after considering all of these, and perhaps other factors, did the council reach a decision. James continues, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I want to pause for a moment so we can let the significance of this sink in. God made it very clear to Abram, this is the thing that you must do to be part of my people. And after listening to God as a community, James stood up and said, that's no longer the case. And this is what he said specifically from Acts chapter 15, 28 and 29. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. That line, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, is the goal that we're striving for when we make decisions together as a community of faith. Now, don't misunderstand. There is basically no doubt that there were detractors in Jerusalem, just as there are bound to be detractors when any difficult decision has been made by the church. In fact, this may not have been the last of Paul's run-ins with the circumcision party. We're not sure exactly when Galatians was written, possibly still after the Jerusalem Council, where Paul writes famously in Galatians 5.12, as for those agitators, this circumcision party, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Just do off with the whole. But let's get back to the real nugget in this whole passage of Scripture. Verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's lost to love in that short little line. And two of the things that stand out to me are, first, the community's confidence that they had heard from the Holy Spirit. Man, you do not invoke God's name if you're not sure about it. At least these people didn't. But they were confident that they had heard from the Holy Spirit. But the second thing I love about their response is the community's humility, expressed in their soft language. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, acknowledging their role in this decision-making. They could have said, the Holy Spirit revealed to us that this is what we're supposed to do, but they didn't. They said, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. So the decision was made that new converts to Christianity would not have to be circumcised, which you might imagine was no small factor in the early church's growth. Think about it. I want to read a passage from Henry Nouwen's book, In the Name of Jesus, as we head towards the finish line here. Christian leaders cannot simply be persons who have well-informed opinions about the burning issues of our time. Their leadership must be rooted in the permanent, intimate relationship with the incarnate Word, Jesus, and they need to find there the source for their words, advice, and guidance. Dealing with burning issues without being rooted in a deep personal relationship with God easily leads to divisiveness, because before we know it, our sense of self is caught up in our opinion about a given subject. But when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative." Now, that's something worth struggling for, don't you think? At that same meeting last week, I was talking with a pastor, and he was telling me about the difficulty their church has gone through over the last couple of years, struggling with the role of women in leadership. That's a significant struggle that their church is going through. It is not a significant struggle that we are going through. But what are the questions that we have to seek God's will on together? How is God calling us to engage with the students of our city? A small group of us got together last Wednesday night and we started this process of discerning how God might be calling us to engage the student population of our city. How can we become allies to our indigenous neighbors? We started a conversation about this earlier in the winter. Our youth are going to be leading the charge in our discernment process as we learn more about this. What is the best long-term home for our congregation? We love this space, but we have to think about the long-term and ask God, is this our home for the long run? how do we discern that? How can we grow our staff team to best serve our collective needs and goals? These are questions that our staff partnership committee and our steering committee are asking. And of course, the question that we're going to dive into next month, how do we respond to questions around same-gender attraction in Christian faith? There are so many questions that we have to navigate and wrestle with together as a church community. And I believe that God has something to say to us. Henry Nouwen writes elsewhere that God is a God of the present and reveals to those who are willing to listen carefully to the moment in which they live the steps they are to take toward the future. Ah, oh, there's hope in that. And so whatever the conversation is that we're engaged with, we'll enter into dialogue, we'll observe God's activity, we'll consider higher principles, we'll look for fruit, we'll examine Scripture, and maybe we'll do other things too. Maybe we'll, we'll spend time in silence Maybe we'll pray together. Maybe we'll allow ourselves time instead of rushing towards decisions. But whatever it is, we need to do it together. I love what the theologian and author Marva Dawn writes. She says, we are a community listening to God together. I can't teach well if those present don't work on the topic with me side by side. And so with that in mind, I want to close with a word of prayer. I'll ask you to stand. And I want to pray from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, this is my prayer for each one who's part of this church community. It's my prayer that we would be able to listen to your voice together that we, would, be, that we be, would believe that you speak to us today and that we would do the things that, are, that we can do that are within our power to position ourselves well to hear from you. God, I'm grateful for the reminder of communion that we share from the same loaf and we drink from the same cup. We are part of the same body. But as the church has always done, we will find ourselves at points of disagreement. And God, I pray that you would help us to discern your will for us moving forward. As we head into groups for discussion, God, I ask that you would help us to engage in good conversation with one another, one of the many things that we need to learn to do well. Go with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As always, an invitation to talk amongst one another around tables in the gym. Please make your way over there. We're leaving here a little later than usual, so I'll ask that even if you're not going to participate in discussion groups, that you make your way out of the sanctuary quickly so we can tidy up and make room for our friends at St. John's. Thank you.